Welcome to the I Don't Think So podcast with your host, Melanie Mitchell Epp, a successful author, speaker, mentor, and coach. Melanie is an expert in helping people leave behind the why me mentality to take control of their life. Not only is her story of victory inspiring, but she knows how to empower others to find victory in their own lives. Now, here is your host, author of I Don't Think So, and the creator of the I Don't Think So Bootcamp, Melanie Mitchell Epp. Hi, I'm Melanie Mitchell Epp, and I'm so glad to have you with me today on episode two of my podcast, I Don't Think So. In episode one, I talked about the passion I have for helping people change their story the same way I've changed my story. That might not seem like a big deal to you, but it's a big deal to me. I spent way too much of my life in survival mode and in struggle. I've lived through years of pain, patterns, and powerlessness. And if I can help someone either avoid that on their journey or shorten the part of their journey that they spend living that way, or even give them hope that they can change that part of their life if that is the journey that they're on, then I'm going to do what I can to do that. Life is not meant to be lived that way. And so I'm here to be a voice to bring freedom. It's out of that passion that I wrote my book, I Don't Think So. And then I created a boot camp to go along with it. Because sometimes we just need a place of focus and motivation, a place where we can be encouraged by an actual real live somebody else's voice helping us. If you haven't listened to episode one, I really encourage you to go back and take a listen. I want you to hear my heart about the pivotal point in my life that changed the way I saw everything. It became the foundation for my book and my boot camp and this podcast that you're listening to today. I love sharing my journey because I've helped countless people on their journey change their story the same way I changed mine. And nothing gives me more satisfaction than knowing I'm changing lives. I want to talk to you today about the way that captivity happens in our lives. There are things that happen to all of us that shouldn't, that we weren't made to be treated that way. We weren't made to have those experiences, but it actually isn't the event or the mistreatment or the experience that really determines how those things affect us. It's our response to those treatments or events or experiences. In fact, our response is actually more critical than what happened to us. And you might at first have a little bit of difficulty accepting that because sometimes we just put all the attention on what happened to us. But you can see it in a home where there's two siblings that grow up in some kind of dysfunction and they both experience the same thing, but they grow up and one of them leaves home and establishes a successful career and great relationships and they enjoy life and the other one just struggles. They can't get their career working or their relationships can't stick together. Maybe they're in an addiction or a depression. What's the difference? They've both experienced the same thing so it can't be the experience. Well, the difference is their response. 
The response to what happens to us is the deciding factor to how we're affected. And when we realize that, we can come to the conclusion that captivity actually begins with a thought. When we let what happens to us determine what we think about ourselves. We're the source of the captivity through our response. And I'm not justifying or saying that the things that have happened are okay. That's not my point at all. My point is if we don't recognize what's in our power to change, we are caught in the captivity that we're living in. Let me illustrate it using just a simple $20 bill. You know that when that $20 bill was created, its value was intrinsic in the $20 bill. It was established by its creator. And it doesn't matter how we misuse it or mistreat it. We can't devalue it. I could take a $20 bill, crumple it up, throw it in the mud, step on it, rip it in half, tape it back together. I could misuse it in many ways, but it would still be worth $20. The same goes for us. Our value was inherent in us at the time we were created. It was decided and determined by our creator. And what happens to us can't diminish that value unless we believe it does. Someone can mistreat us, misuse us, but we still have the value we were given at creation. It's only when we see how we're treated or what we experienced as a reflection of our value that we become worthless or worthless. Devaluing of who we are only happens in our thoughts. We invite captivity in when we let what's happened to us be a reflection of us instead of a reflection of the people involved in that experience happening to us. I want to tie this thought into the title of my book for a second. If something happens to me where I'm mistreated or I'm devalued, because I know what I'm worth, I should be able to respond to that situation with a simple, I don't think so, and move on without becoming devalued, without reducing what I think I'm worth or what I can expect. When I was going through my childhood, I definitely went through some things that I allowed them to assign value to me that was way less than what my creator had determined simply because I thought so. They really weren't a reflection of my value, but I let them be by believing them. And so it took me into captivity. Today, I think captivity, I don't think so. But these things were so impacting and I believed such lies out of them that they really set the stage for my adult life and for the destruction I'd go through. And so I wanna share with you three significant things from my childhood what happened to me and what it was I believed about them and how they took me into a level of captivity. And I really want you to focus not on the things that happened as much as I want you to notice my response to them. The first incident that happened to me was when I started school, when I began grade one. I was an avid learner and I was so excited about 
beginning this new season of life, getting to ride the school bus for the first time, getting to go to the little red brick school, getting to sit in my own desk. There was about 30 kids in our class and I was loving every minute of what was going on. About two weeks into the start of school, I heard that we were going to have something called catechism. And my heart leapt again because I didn't know that we would get to hear about God at school. And that sounded delightful to me. But what I didn't know, what nobody had told me, was that I was a Protestant kid in a Catholic school. I didn't know what either of those words meant. I didn't even know that they existed. When it came time for catechism class to start, the teacher moved me and three of the other boys to the side of the room and gave us something to color. And she gave catechism books to the rest of the kids. I was a little puzzled by what was going on. Then she said, let's stand up and say the Lord's Prayer. I'd been doing that with her every day for two weeks. And so I stood up just like I'd been learning, folded my hands, bowed my head, began to pray. And I heard her voice call out quite abruptly, not you, you sit down and startled. I looked up, I opened my eyes. She was looking straight at me. I quickly sat down. I was so embarrassed. I did not know what I'd done wrong. I didn't know why everyone else had a catechism book, but I soon learned that if you were Catholic, you got to pray, you got a rosary, you got to go to church, you got to experience the sacraments and it sounded glorious. But as the weeks went on, the message was clear to me that I wasn't one of them. It was shocking. And when my classmates got to do things like go through confirmation and first confession, it was so painful. I remember the day that we were walking to the church in the afternoon so that they could all practice for first confirmation. And all of the girls in my class had these white satin and lace dresses that their parents had purchased for them to meet with the priest and have this special moment of connection with their God. I felt so embarrassed and awkward and I didn't belong and yet I had to be there. It felt like I had showed up inappropriately dressed to a party I hadn't been invited to. And it brought incredible pain into my heart. I knew from listening to the catechism lessons that I had the same problem they all did, which was sin. But I recognized that I was the only one without a solution. I was the only kid without a white dress, the only one without a way to make myself okay with God. And the truth is, the teacher wasn't responsible for my religious training. She hadn't done anything wrong. She just rightly separated me out of the class because I wasn't Catholic. But the circumstances set me up to wrongly believe that I had been rejected by God. And if I wasn't good enough for God, how could I be good enough for anyone? In those moments, a belief formed in my heart that I wasn't worth much. I felt like an outsider with no way to ever really belong. And I let this situation define me as something less than, and I naturally lowered my expectation of what rights I had in the world. I learned to take what was handed out and not ask for more because after all, I was an outsider. 
And so I responded to life, not according to the truth, but according to what I believed about what had happened. And rejection became my first hijacker. And I just really want you to notice that, that it wasn't what happened to me that was as significant as what I believed about it. The second experience that really formed what I thought about myself happened when I was in my preteen years. I was molested by a minister who moved into our town. He knocked on our door, introduced himself. My mom invited him to dinner and he joined our family at the table. He laughed. He was fun. He gave me his attention and he began to play games with me and wrestle me. And when you have a low sense of self-worth, it's really normal to welcome an abuser into your life because of their attention for you. And I enjoyed his attention. I felt like he noticed me and I forgot for a time about being rejected because no one had ever made me feel like he did. And I might not have been good enough for God, but somehow I was feeling special to this man of God. And I just responded to him with the innocence of a little girl who just wanted to look in someone else's face besides her family's and know that she was good. So when he began doing inappropriate things to me, I didn't say a word. I didn't say anything to him. I didn't say anything to my parents. I didn't understand what was happening. It felt uncomfortable, but at first I told myself it wasn't a big deal. Of course, things progressed and I didn't like it and it didn't feel right, but I was concerned what would happen if I told. Would I lose his attention? Would he be angry? I lived in conflict for quite a while with what was happening and eventually it just became too much and I had to tell. The weight temporarily lifted from my shoulders as the secret was exposed. And I think I probably could have continued on from that point with not a whole lot of issues over that. But something happened that I didn't expect. When my mom told his overseers what he had done, they didn't do anything. The only consequence to him molesting me was that they moved him. And that was puzzling enough in itself. But months later, when we went to our cabin at the lake and we drove by the kids camp that was there, I discovered that he was working there as a counselor. And I couldn't imagine why they would let him continue to be with kids. I determined that there must have been a problem with me and not with him. It must have been my fault what happened. Because if it wasn't, if what he has done, what he had done was wrong, they would have stopped him. And they didn't. The only conclusion I could come to was that it must have been my fault. So how did I respond to abuse? I wondered why I'd bothered to tell anyone. And I blamed myself. I decided that I was the guilty one. And my response to what happened became part of my identity. It crippled my ability to set boundaries or draw lines or even determine what was good or bad. I didn't believe that I could trust my feelings anymore. And I decided that just because something feels wrong, it doesn't mean it is. And in that choice, in that response, abuse became my second hijacker. Rejection hijacked me 
and now abuse has hijacked me. But again, it wasn't the events or the experiences that were the key. It was my response to them. The third thing that happened went on through a period of time in my teens where there was conflict in a business relationship on my father's. And demands began to be made regarding things that belonged to my parents. At first, it seemed to just be misunderstanding and that communication could resolve everything, but it didn't. And the dissension grew rapidly as there were attempts to resolve things, but it would end up fruitless. And it didn't seem to matter how hard my dad tried to work things out or how many times it seemed like an agreement had been reached. The conflict continued and one issue after another arose and the breach grew wider. There were threats made and there was this dark ominous cloud over our home and over our lives. And in addition to that, people made accusations against my dad that brought an incredible amount of pain into an already unbearable situation. My dad would get migraine headaches and lay on the couch for three days at a time with his arm covering his eyes, trying to shut life out. And as I watched him, deep fear took root inside of me that there was no way to stop the conflict and nowhere to turn for help. Our lives were paralyzed by a situation with seemingly no way out. It was like the ordeal would never end. I didn't feel safe and I often woke up wondering if today would be the day that we would all die. When the end finally came, it came in an extremely painful way. When I was 17 years old, we had to pack up our belongings and leave the only home and life I had ever known. Our home didn't belong to us anymore. I hated the injustice. I felt so helpless and I hated the pain that I saw in my parents' face. And I concluded at that point that life just happens to you. It can be good or it can be bad, but there's nothing you can do about it. There's no choices, no solutions, no God to appeal to, no justice to be had, no way to stop the pain if someone hurts you. And it was the finishing touch on a mindset that would set me up for a future of destruction. Terror had hijacked me too. As I shared in the beginning, it's not the events and experiences that happen to us in life that are the critical thing that determines how we're affected. It is our responses to what happens to us. I believed so many lies about what had happened to me. I devalued myself in response to what was done to me. And the lies I believed caused me to give up control over my life and establish a victim mentality in my mind that led me into captivity as an adult, into a life I never imagined and a life that nobody should ever have to live. It's so easy to do. It's so easy to believe that the things that have happened to us are a reflection of us and our worth instead of seeing them as a reflection of the people who mistreated us. And unless we change our beliefs, we live on after those events as a victim. And that's where I want to end today's conversation. I hope that you have listened and been able to see some of the things that you've experienced in life 
and ask yourself if there were beliefs that formed in you out of them that have affected your life. If there were ways that you devalued yourself or ways that you gave up control of your life or the thought that you had control of your life. I want you to know that if you have, it doesn't have to stay that way. I've changed my story and you can change your story. Thank you for listening and spending time with me today on the I Don't Think So podcast. If you've received value from today's show, I encourage you to listen to all eight episodes and share them with your friends that you think would find it meaningful. And if you're ready for change, I encourage you to take some action now. Visit my website at melaniemitchellepp.com. You can order my book there. You can also sign up and get instant access to my I Don't Think So boot camp, and you can begin to change your story today. Thank you for listening and spending time with us today on the I Don't Think So podcast. If you receive value from this show, I encourage you to listen to all eight episodes and then share them with your friends. And if you're ready for change, I encourage you to take action now. Visit Melanie's website at melaniemitchellapp.com to order her book or to sign up and get instant access to the I Don't Think So Bootcamp so you can begin to change your story today.